So we're on pace to cover a chapter a year. So at this, by the time I'm 50, we'll be done with John. And uh, so we are still here. Um, but no, obviously, COVID set us back. And we've only been in, in John for three lessons, like I said. Did a short detour um, to a worship study, and now we're back. And um, why have I titled um, this whole story, The Samaritan Woman at the Well, Jesus' Mission for the Father's Worship and the Salvation of the World? Um, it's because Jesus is on mission. He's been on mission ever since the beginning of the Gospel of John, all the way through the cross and the resurrection. He's on mission here in chapter 4. He intentionally goes to Samaria to seek this woman out at the well. Um, he says, I must pass through Samaria. But he's also on mission for salvation and the salvation of the world. So remember when we talked through John, what does the world mean in the Gospel of John? Does it mean the dirt and the grass? Um, what's the world in John? Do you remember? There's a couple things you could say. Unsaved people. All right, unsaved people. Yep. It's the world system. Excellent. Especially it's the world system that's in rebellion against its maker. So John 3.16, the astonishing thing about John 3.16 is that God so loved the world, this system in opposition to its creator. Um, but the world in John also has this idea of all nations, not just the Jews, all nations and ethnicities. So Jesus came for the salvation of the world. He's on a mission for that. Look at the very end of John 4. John 4.42, actually, the end of this story. Look at where it ends. Just so you know that this title is, is, is put together from what I think is the main thrust of this story. It ends by the Samaritans declaring that we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Samaritans, Gentiles, Chinese, Japanese, Americans, Jews. Um, that's what Jesus is on mission for. He's also on mission for the Father's worship. That's the ultimate goal. That's where this whole chapter is leading. And we said that the worship of the Father is the ultimate goal of redemption. Um, you've been saved. You've been given all the gifts of redemption for the purpose of worship. Um, that's why we did our little detour in the study of worship. All the gifts of salvation, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation, justification, Redemption, eternal life, the Holy Spirit, it's all to make you a worshiper. That's where it's all going. And so Jesus has come for this ends. Look over at verse 23, John 4. At the very end of that verse, it says, The Father is seeking. The idea is he's zealously pursuing such people to worship him. Redeemed people in spirit and truth to worship him. He's seeking these. And so the Son has come on mission to seek these kind of worshipers for the Father. So that's what it's all about in the Gospel of John, and especially this chapter. Jesus is on mission to the cross, ultimately, but to bring salvation to the world, ultimately for the Father's worship from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and language. And so this morning, I was debating whether or not to do a part six to our worship series and talk about worship as it is and God's goal is global worship, worship from every corner of creation, every tribe, tongue, nation. And we could go to all places all over the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, the Psalms, God's desire for global worship. And then as I was looking at this passage, I realized that this passage is that passage. This passage makes that very 
point, uh, what we're going to see this, this morning. Um, but to get us started, I want to read a quote, extended quote here, uh, by John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Who's read Let the Nations Be Glad in here? Jordan, Bobby? All right, so if you've not, it's a book on missions, um, but it's not just for missionaries. It is excellent. Um, every person in the church should read the book. It's very, very helpful um, to think clearly about, about, about missions. This is um, God's goal, and it should be the heartbeat of the, of the church. So let me read you the, the quote, and I will tie it into our lesson in a minute. So Piper, this is how he begins the book, very first page. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. How about that for a first line of a missions book? Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the people, peoples and the greatness of God. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. But worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God and worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will exalt in you. Missions begins and ends in worship. That's the point. And that's exactly where this passage is going. We've been talking about worship. And the point is that worship is the goal of missions because it's the goal of redemption. We've said that from day one. Worship's the goal of redemption. Therefore, it's the goal of missions. And worship is also the fuel for missions. You will not go to the nations or, and you will not go to your neighbor if you're not filled in your heart with worship to God. If the worship of God is not important to you, neither will God's mission be important to you. To say it the other way, if you're casual in your life about the worship of God in your neighbor or in the nations, it doesn't mean a whole lot to you, then the root cause is you're not worshiping in your heart. It's evidence that we are lacking in worship in our heart. It doesn't mean too much to us that God's name is um, belittled. He's not being worshipped. He's not receiving the worship he deserves from the nations. It reveals that we don't believe that worship is really the most enjoyable life imaginable. And so we settle into a nice, self-absorbed little life, not very passionate about my worship of God or the worship of God by those perishing. So how do we cultivate this? That's what our passage, passage this morning is going to show us. The way we'll cultivate this is by remembering that God is passionate for his worship. God is seeking worshipers. He's passionate. And when we remember that, that will motivate us to worship, to seeking the worship of others, to evangelism, to missions. And 
We cultivate this by remembering the greatness of salvation that we have received and then going and taking that to others that they might become worshipers. So this morning, you can see in your outline, we're going to be in verses 27 to 38 of this passage. This is point four on your outline. It says Jesus' mission demands eager gospel proclamation from himself and from his followers. And in these verses, we're going to see the disciples come up again, and they're going to be the foil, the, the contrast to two models that we are called to imitate. The Samaritan woman and Jesus. And both the Samaritan woman and Jesus model for us these motivations. She is motivated by the greatness of the gospel, the grace of God, to go proclaim Christ to the people in Samaria. And Christ is constrained by the will of his father, by, by the father's devotion to his own worship to go and proclaim the gospel. So you see both of these motivations, they're both models for us and also rebukes for us as they were rebukes for the disciples. So remember back in verse 8, beginning of this story, um, Jesus is exhausted. He's tired, he's thirsty, he's hungry, sitting by this well in Samaria, and the disciples go on a mission. They go into the city to get food, um, to get bread to bring back. And while they're gone, Jesus has this incredible conversation with the woman of Samaria. Um, and he offers her living water. And um, it's an amazing conversation. And right at the end, at the climax of this conversation, Jesus announces he's the Messiah. Um, and at that point, as soon as he announces he's the Messiah, the, the disciples now return to the well in verse 26. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. And so the first point here is in verses 27 to 30. The Samaritan woman models zealous gospel witness in response to the person and work of Christ. So the disciples go away into town. Look, look at how similar this language is. Go back to verse 8. It says, For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. So they journey, and now they're, they're coming back. And we're told that they're astonished what they find. Look at verse 27. When they came back, they marveled. They were astonished that he was talking with a woman. If you remember back to our previous lesson, their, their astonishment really is quite understandable. The Samaritans were unclean, especially Samaritan women were especially unclean, they reckon. Um, beyond that, a Jewish rabbi... Uh, would, would avoid prolonged conversation with women in order to avoid any kind of questionable um, scenario. And also they, 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 they viewed it as a waste of, of time. Um, and so the disciples come back and they're astonished and just think uh, if only the disciples had known that Jesus had asked to share this woman's drinking vessel, how much more astonished they would have been. Um, the point is, is that Jesus has broken through all these extra biblical um, customs and standards um, that kept the Jews from loving um, others. Um, he had broken through all of these social barriers because the Father had ordained him to seek out this woman. So the disciples are on this mission for bread. Jesus is on mission for souls, for worshipers of the Father. And so the disciples don't have an explanation for what's going on. They come back, and they're astonished. What's, what's, what's he doing? 
but neither are they willing to ask. Look, look at how the verse ends, verse 27. But no one said, what are you seeking? Or why are you talking with her? So why don't they ask? Uh, we're not told, but I think it's probably because Jesus is always doing this kind of thing. He's always upsetting the apple cart. He's always breaking against norms and customs. And they've learned to expect it almost from Jesus and, and trust him. He, he, he's up to something. They don't know what. What's he doing? I don't, I don't know. They're going to find out in just a minute. The thing I want to point out for us here is the empty-handed disciples who bring back only bread. They're empty-handed in the sense that they bring nothing else with them other than bread. That's all they have. It's because that was their mission. That's all they were concerned about. They go to the city to get bread, and they come back to get bread. And I, I think it's because they didn't have the mission of Christ governing them that when they come back and see Christ with this woman, that's why they're astonished. In other words, if they had had the mission of Christ in their hearts driving them the whole time, they wouldn't have been that astonished. They say, oh yeah, well, we know what you're up to, of course. That's what they should have been doing. But they go, only concerned about their own food and their own needs, and they return empty-handed. But had they known, they probably would have gone to Samaria and returned in the same way the Samaritan woman goes to Samaria and returns. And that's our next point. Look at verses 28 to 30. The zealous woman goes to Samaria, the, the town of Sychar, it brings back men. Verse 28 to 30. Look at her haste in verse 28. The woman left her water jar. Catch that. John put that there on purpose. She left her water pot. That was the whole reason she came to the well to begin with, right? She came to the well to get water. And she leaves it. She came physically and spiritually thirsty. She came in shame. She came trying to hide herself from the public eye. She came without inward satisfaction. She came dead without spiritual life. She came fruitless. She came to get water to sustain her miserable existence. And then she meets Jesus, who gives her living water, who gives her spiritual life, who gives her the forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit, worship of God. And upon drinking this water, she almost entirely forgets about her water pot. She's so filled with satisfaction in Christ and the gospel that he's just given her. That her pursuits of life, just to, I don't have anything else, just get water. She forgets about it. Keener said it this way, Craig Keener. He said, John reports that the woman abandoned her water pot, signifying that she was more concerned with the water of eternal life now the natural water which she had come to seek. She came thirsty to get water, and she leaves refreshed now to get people. That's the point. And now she runs to the town with a message. Look at verse 29. She says, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. She says, come and see. Do you remember back in John, someone else said that. Do you remember? Who said that last? Come and see. It's in chapter 1. What was his name? It's Philip, right? Seeking who? Nathaniel. And it's incredible that the same pattern, as soon as Philip comes to know that Jesus is Messiah, the first thing he does, the text makes it so clear, the first thing he does is seeks out Nathaniel, his uh, hometown um, companion. 
First thing he does. In other words, the proper response to knowing Christ and his salvation is eager proclamation to others. So these people, Philip and this woman here, are models to show us that God intends his gospel to go forward through personal testimony by those who've experienced, by those who've drunk and have become satisfied by living water. That's how God has ordained the gospel to go forward. And the point is that if you have drunk, that's what your response ought to be. And if you've grown cold here, and we're going to see the disciples grew cold here, um, they knew Christ a lot better than this woman knew Christ. And all they care about is bread. And I think a lot of us are in that same situation. And if you've grown cold, um, you need to go back to the fire of the grace of Christ that was given to you in salvation and warm yourself. That's where this life comes from. Astonishment in the living water that you've received as a Christian. You have eternal life. You have the Holy Spirit. You have total forgiveness of sins by grace alone, by a simple look to Christ alone. Doesn't that warm your soul? Doesn't that fill you with the desire to proclaim Him? It ought. In fact, that's evidence that you've really drunk and it becomes satisfied. That's what she does. And she's a model for us. So look, it says she departs into the town. She goes, she departs in the town, just like the disciples departed in the town. But she goes with a message. What does she say? She says, come and see a man who told me all things whatsoever I did. Now, this is obviously hyperbole. Um, did Jesus tell her all things whatsoever she did? Well, well no, obviously not. We know that Jesus told her that she has had five husbands, and the one that she's now with is not her husband, right? Um, that, that, that's far from all things she's ever done. But the point is that if Jesus has this much insight into her life, then he knows everything about what she has ever done, and he has a message to that that applies to everything about what she has ever done. From this, she concluded he was a prophet, remember? So she says, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. So he, she recognized he has a message that needs to be taken seriously. He's a prophet. And then Jesus goes on to give her this discourse about worship. And following Jesus' words now, she concludes he's not just a prophet. He's the prophet. The one Moses promised. The one that the Samaritans were looking forward to. The Messiah who would declare all things. Look back at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. That means he's going to set the record straight. He's going uh, to restore God's worship. He's going to declare everything we need. And then look down now at her message here in, uh, in verse 20. Um, 29, come and see a man who told me all things whatsoever I did. D.A. Carson said this, from Jesus' knowledge of her personal life, she had concluded that he must be at very least a prophet. From the ensuing discussion, she had begun to perceive he was the prophet. So she runs to town to proclaim to all the town's people who before she was avoiding. Remember, she came to this well at high noon. You don't come to the well at this time. She wanted to avoid people. Now she's going to the people she wanted to avoid. 
because of the shame of her life, they all know about her story, her, her shameful life. They all know about it. And now she's going excited to tell them, hey, I, I just met somebody that told me all about my sin. <laughs> that certainly caught the people's attention. She's excited that somebody's exposed her life. What, what's gotten into her? She's no longer trying to cover up her sin. She's rejoicing in its exposure because of the good news of the gospel. That's what the gospel does. It frees us from, from hiding, from, from covering, from going to the well just to satisfy our life on whatever we can to a man has told me everything I've ever done, every sin I've ever committed. That's good news. And it's good news for you too because there's forgiveness of sins here. There's eternal life here in him because he knows about every sin in your life. That's the message she goes with. And she concludes by inviting them to come and see. Look how she ends. She says, come and see, can this be the Christ? In Greek, it's literally, this can't be the Christ, can it? It's, it expects a negative answer. So if someone asks you that, this can't be the Christ, can it? What do you say? Well, well no, it can't. But she probably phrases it that way to express her astonishment. And in order to invite the people to come check it out for themselves. This can't be the Christ, can it? I don't know. Come and see. Come and see. So eager. So desperate. Now to share this message. And look at her produce now in verse 30. They went out. The people of the town went out and were coming to him. People obviously are intrigued by her testimony. Never heard anything from this woman like this before. Craig Keener again said, no less than Philip, she becomes a model for witness. In this case, however, she brings virtually an entire town. <laughs> Leon Morris also says, the disciples had gone down to the town, they who knew the master much better and longer, and they brought back some loaves. The woman went down, she brought back some men. All she had was a fresh awareness of her sin. All she had was a fresh awareness of the greatness of the grace of Christ in her life. So let me ask you, have you grown cold? Have you nothing to excite you? Have you nothing to eagerly proclaim to the world? Haven't you drunk of this living water as well? Don't you also have a testimony about Christ's gracious exposure of your sin? And of the eternal life he's given you by faith alone because of his cross work? Don't you have anything to eagerly proclaim? Have you grown cold? I have. Lord, use this passage of my life to convict me. So remember this. Imitate this woman. She is a model. She is rebuking the disciples right now in her actions. We'll look now at um, the next point. While, while this scene is taking place, while she's going to Samaria, calling all these people, and while they're traveling back, another scene is taking place at the same time. That's verses 31 to 38. Christ now models urgent gospel labor in response to the work which lies before him. And again, the poor disciples just aren't getting it. The disciples are still preoccupied with food. Look at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. They're, they're hungry. Um, they've been on a long journey. Um, the disciples probably have already started chowing down, and here's Jesus. 
not really concerned about eating. And like good disciples, they're concerned that to help their, their master, their, to care for him, provide for his, his needs. But he doesn't eat. Now the question is why? Why isn't Jesus eating here? Um, the first thing we can say, it's not because he thought food was an entirely unspiritual thing. Like a real spiritual person doesn't need it to eat food. Um, Jesus is feasting at other places in the gospel. Uh, food, physical things are important. They're good. It's not what he's saying. He doesn't eat here in order to teach the disciples an important lesson. He doesn't eat because he is the satisfied son. Verse 32 to 38. He's the satisfied son who is nourished with spiritual food. Look what he says. Verse 32, he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. What does that mean? You don't know about it. Well, the disciples think, he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about because someone bring him food. Look at the next verse. Disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? But Jesus is saying that I have food that you don't know about, and that's exposed primarily by your question. Who's brought him something to eat? In other words, you're so preoccupied with earthly things that you're blinded to the spiritual realities about which I am about. That's my food. And you don't even know about this food that my life is about. You're so preoccupied. The disciples are so much like the Samaritan woman. They're so much like Nicodemus. They're so focused on the here and now, what's going on in this life, that they miss spiritual realities about which Jesus is talking they're after food, trivial things like eating and drinking, and it blinds them to the true food, which they're to fill their life with. It doesn't mean, again, that food is bad. That's not what he's saying. But we have a tendency to be blinded to ultimate realities by the little things in this life. We seek our life in such small things, the true joy satisfaction and nourishment comes from somewhere else. That's what Jesus is saying. So what is food? Jesus says, I have food that you don't know about. I think the idea with food is that it's something that provides nourishment, it sustains you, and it satisfies you. Why do you eat? You eat because you need to eat in order to continue living. You have to. It's something you must do. And you eat because it's enjoyable. You like to eat. And Jesus is saying that in a, the same way, in the spiritual realm, there is food that you disciples are ignoring. And it's even more needful, and it's even more satisfying than earthly food. Well, what is it? Look at verse 34. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus has been sent. There it is. He's on mission. Um, what is his food? It's to do the will of his Father. Well, what's that? Verse 25, to seek worshipers, right? What's the Father all about? Seeking worshipers, saving souls. That's what Jesus is about. What was the Father's will for Jesus? We see it all through the Gospel of John. It's to seek and to save the lost. It's to seek worshipers and then to lay his life down on the cross. Everything is pressing to that. And Jesus says, that is what is needful for me. 
And that's what deeply satisfies me even more than physical food. Christ is saying um, that saving and loving to the end his disciples is what nourishes his life and what satisfies his life. He depends on and delights in doing the will of the Father more than he depends on and delights in satisfying his stomach with food. So, again, Jesus is hungry. He's really hungry here. He's really thirsty. He still hasn't drunk water. Remember, he was parched uh, when he came and sat this well. He has this conversation with this woman, and now he has food in front of him, and he doesn't eat it. He doesn't drink. Why? The point is he's really satisfied with something else. And you guys sort of know what this is like. I mean, you've, you've, you've probably experienced maybe you're involved in a project or a work, and you come to the end of the day, like, I didn't even eat lunch today, right? So you're so focused, you're so consumed in something. That's sort of the idea here. He's so preoccupied and satisfied with the conversation that he just had with this woman and with what's getting ready to happen as the Samaritan's coming that it overshadows his hunger and thirst for food and water. It's amazing. To put it another way, love for God's worship and love for sinners is what Jesus longed for. It was his greatest need, and it was his greatest satisfaction. And I would say for us, the reason we so often fail in our witness is that we simply do not desire souls, and we simply do not desire the worship of God as we want. It's not that big of a deal to us. We are satisfied and think our primary needs are physical. Your primary need and your primary satisfaction comes when you seek the Father's worship and you seek the eternal life of another. My priority is often sustaining my life and satisfying my flesh. That's, and then once that's taken care of, okay, then I'll devote myself to the Lord and his work. But Jesus says, no, you got it the other way around. True nourishment, deep satisfaction will only come as you feed your souls on the will of God. We don't believe that, but it's true. Why was Jesus so effective? Jesus was effective because he deeply longed for the Father's worship. So it drove him. And he was effective because he deeply cared for and loved the souls of those who are around him. Do you care for and long for the souls of those around you? I don't. I am like the disciples in so many ways. It's not that big of a deal for me. I'll be concerned about it if my belly's full, but not first. So it drove Jesus. It's what he got up to do. It's what... What was his life all about? It was the worship of God and the eternal life of others and their worship of God. So we need to repent here. We're rebuked by the woman and now we're rebuked by Christ. In other words, this is our ultimate need. This is our ultimate satisfaction. Well, now in verse 35 to 38, Jesus changes the picture from food to a harvest in order um, to rebuke his disciples again for their failure and their earthly mindedness. Here, Jesus is speaking to the food of a harvest of a ready crop. Look at verse 35. 
He says, don't you say that there's four months and then comes the harvest? Um, this is probably a proverbial saying. The harvest, the, the barley harvest took place in April, May. So four months prior would have been January, February. Not a very ideal time to be traveling. Seems like this is a hot time of year. Jesus is exhausted by this well. So it's probably a proverbial saying that the disciples rural Israel used. And um, it seems to have this gist to it. Um, with something like this. Harvest isn't for another four months. No need to get busy now. A harvest is yet four months off, and there's no need to excite oneself over it too soon. Just take it easy. we got four months to go. Sort of how the, the saying was probably used, somebody that was overly zealous to do something. Man, a harvest is still four months. Take it easy. But Jesus takes this saying and says that it must not be used now. No more. Stop it. The harvest is upon us. Jesus says, with my coming, the harvest of the nations has begun. It's started. It's going right now. Jesus' point is that the disciples ought not act casually as, there's, as though there's time to spare, as though there's still four months. There's no time to spare is what Jesus is saying. The harvest is ready. And to fail to get busy now will result in the loss of much fruit. And it will make you guilty of sloth. Just think of the Proverbs, the sluggard sitting inside when the, the harvest is hanging. They are ready to be picked. You'll be guilty of sloth, and you will be guilty of losing much fruit, Jesus is saying. What is the harvest? Look what Jesus says. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Remember, back in verse 30, here comes the Samaritans walking towards them, and Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look. He's most likely pointing them to the approaching Samaritans. What is the harvest? Here it is. It's these Samaritans who are walking towards you. Look at the harvest. That's it. That's what the harvest is. It's souls for Christ and for the Father's worship. The harvest is ripe. What does that mean? The harvest is ripe. It's ready. I don't think it means that everybody out there is just eager to become a convert to Christ. It's like they're just dangling fruit ready to, to turn. It's not the idea. The idea is that there's nothing left to be done in redemptive history before the harvest of the nations begins. It's here. With the coming of Christ and his cross work, the harvest has begun. Nothing more needs to be done. It's ready. So what are you waiting for? Get to work. There's no time to spare. There's not four months into the harvest. It's here. There's fruit to be had. There's work to be done. There's no time to waste. Then in verses 36 to 38, he tells us that the harvesters also have great reward. Look at verse 36, the reward, what the reward is. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. He tells us that the harvesters have great reward and the reward is re reaping souls for eternal life. <clears throat> what could be more satisfying and rewarding than bringing another sinner to the same water from which you have drunk, that they too may have eternal that's the reward. So Jesus is saying. Next, there's the joy in having a role in the eschatological harvest. Look at verse end of verse 36, 37. So that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. In other words, one sows and doesn't get to reap the fruit of his labor. 
Others reap, but they didn't involve themselves in the sowing process. But the point is that they both have the same goal. What is it? A crop, a harvest. And they both have joy. Because their joy is found in harvesting souls for the Father's worship. The point is that to have any role in this process of sowing or reaping is an extraordinary privilege. And you, as a disciple of Christ, live in the time of harvest. We're going to see in the next verse, the time of sowing was the Old Testament. You live in the time of harvest. That's an extraordinary privilege. There's joy to be had. You get to reap what all of salvation history has been building up to is what Jesus is saying. It's incredible. You're going to sleep during that? D.A. Carson said that Jesus and his followers arrive at that moment in redemptive history when the eschatological harvest begins. And it's the duty and privilege of Jesus' Messiah, Jesus's disciples to gather in the fruit. Finally, look at verse 38. There is a privilege of reaping the fruit of the labor of those who went before. Verse 38. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you've entered into their labor. Who labored? I don't think this is talking sort of Paul's terminology. I sowed, another watered, another planted and, and, and reaped. Um, here Jesus is speaking specifically of the Old Testament prophets. And probably specifically of John the Baptist. All of them were prepared for Christ. All of them were prepared for this time of the new covenant when Christ comes. Um, they labored. They prophesied. They wrote the Old Testament scriptures. They were persecuted. They were put to death. They labored hard, and they didn't get to enjoy the harvest. John the Baptist was, was put to death. Um, he didn't get to see the um, gathering in of the nations. And Jesus is saying that it is a massive privilege. To be who you are at this time in salvation history. And as you enter into the harvest, join in this, you're standing in the footsteps of the whole Old Testament, the prophets, of all those who've gone before. It's astonishing. So the question is, is why are we passing? Why am I so cold? We just talked about worship. If we truly understand worship, this should be obvious. So where it's all going. This is God's desire. He's zealous in seeking worshipers. And so Christ is out there. And his grace to you is so great. How can we hold it in? That's what the woman models to us as well. Um, I want to read for you a quote by, by John Calvin here. Um, just on earthly mindedness. It's from this section in his commentary. Just as we close, just think about earthly mindedness and, and how dangerous it is. Listen to Calvin. He says, by this expression, do you not say, where Christ is saying, do you not say there's yet four months? He intended indirectly to point out how much more attentive the minds of men are to earthly things than to heavenly things. They burn with so intense a desire of harvest that they fully reckon up months and days. But it is astonishing how drowsy and indolent they are in gathering the heavenly wheat. And daily experience proves that this wickedness not only is natural to us, but can be scarcely torn from our hearts. It's so natural. It's so there. 
For while all provide for their earthly life to a distant period, you save up, you, you invest, you do all these things, you should do that. How indolent are we in thinking about heavenly things? We're so earthly minded, we're so much like the disciples. And we're rebuked here by the woman, we're rebuked by Christ. Life is fast, guys. Just think about that last night. <clears throat> and uh, the only thing that matters is Christ. The only thing that matters is eternity. His fruit is the worship of the Father. So, any questions, comments? It's a convicting passage for sure. Bobby? I was just thinking um, as you were talking of the juxtaposition of what the culture says is love mm. and what true love is. Yeah. In the culture, it's make yourself feel good about yourself. You know, loving someone is making them happy right. with themselves. Um, whereas, you know, here we get that picture of eternity. It's like exactly. picking up the fiddle while the Titanic is sinking instead of ushering people to the lifeboats. That's right. You exactly. know, and, and readying the lifeboats. <clears throat> you know, we're just content with making merry music uh, while there is urgency. It's excellent. It's excellent. <laughs> Your thoughts? You know, Mike, you know, yeah. uh, something about uh, being how, the, how it's ripe for harvest. Yeah. And then I just look back on my uh, experience, my testimony. And it was 48 years ago. I was 19 years old. And I was ripe yeah. for harvest. And there were some men who were laboring yeah. and came and shared the gospel with me and reaped. Yep. the fruit and uh, uh, it's just it's such it's great. a clear picture to me but how I was and being right is those God is convicting sure. them of their sin yep. uh, I was being convicted of my sin and, uh, and yep. how I, I was right for harvest. That's excellent and that, that certainly so it motivates yeah. me to want to does yeah it does and that, 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 that principle so it's sort of being applied here though the Old Testament saints labored and you're entered this, this harvest time, which is the new covenant age gathering in the nations. But that same principle applies now in the church age. You see that, Paul. Um, that we participate in this harvest by sowing and by reaping. And um, just because you're not getting converts um, doesn't mean you're not involved in the process. That doesn't mean. That's not what he means. Uh, be involved in the harvest doesn't mean that um, you're getting converts every time you share the gospel. It means you're faithfully engaged in sharing. It looks like hard labor. Um, I get discouraged often as we minister to the students at the, at the house, and um, part of it probably is that I, I, I could be more diligent and proactive. Um, part of it is just they're, they're hard. They, they, they don't care about Christ. I just have to remind myself that principle is the Lord gives the fruit. We're called to be faithful to give ourselves to, to proclaim them because of the grace we've received, because of the worthiness of God for worship, and, uh, and pray the Spirit. So... Anything else? Questions, comments? Yeah. All right, guys, let me pray. Father, Lord, we come before you. You're so worthy of worship. Your salvation is so great. You know, we're so sinful. We're so much like your disciples. Care only about my stomach. But the only thing needful, really, Lord, is to do your will. The only thing satisfying is a life giving for this. Confess it, Father. 
mercy on us, change us, help us to be serious about eternity. Not to neglect our lives here and now, to do everything with an eye. The first 10 minutes in eternity, what will I care about? Help us, Father. We love you. Bless us, prepares for the service to come. And I see you teach us in Jesus' name.